I'm Esther Alma. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air internationally across the United States, right here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, it's part two of our Fashion Forum Africa special. Fashion is much more than clothing, fabric, and stitching. When it comes to Africa and the world, it is culture, community, economy, commerce. Is it stylistic larceny? With that lens, the spin talks the F word, fashion. In part one, the appropriation conversation. Tough talk from Africans on the continent and the diaspora to African-Americans. But what is it really about? Is it time to recognize each other as descendants stitched into the fabric of a global community? And in part two, Africa Fashion Week is now global. It takes place in London, New York, Paris, Washington DC, Berlin. Africans taking control, exporting and importing Africa across the diaspora. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Tanisha Ford and Nana Ekwa Bruhammond. Nana Ekwa Bruhammond is an American Ghanaian writer of novels and short stories. She's also a poet. Her debut novel was Powder Necklace and it received critical acclaim. But Nana is also a passionate fashionista. She's the style editor of Bluefly.com and she's written for AOL, Parenting Magazine, The Village Voice, Metro and Trace Magazine. Dr. Tanisha Ford is a scholar and writer. She is a historian on style. We call her the Spins Style Scholar. Dr. Ford is Assistant Professor of Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts. Her current book is called Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style and the Global Politics of Soul. She's also working on a new book on black style and appropriation. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. 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 Wonderful to be here. Always a pleasure to be with you, Esther. Part two of Fashion Forum Africa Special. Once again, it's 60 minutes all about this word. In part one, we talk appropriation and blackness. Articles, discussions, commentary, critique, back and forth across continents on this word appropriation. One headline sparked a storm. It said, and I quote, African-Americans stop appropriating African culture, style, and tribes, and tribal marks. Now, it was based on a writer who walked the wickedly stylish streets of Afropunk's annual festival of fly culture music fashion in New York, and who returned to pen her thoughts on the ways in which she felt African-Americans rocked what she considered and described as African style. But her critique was about the way tradition was wrapped in contemporary bodies. I called it the remix, but she called for a reality check. Can African-Americans appropriate culture style from Africa 
Or should we be talking connection narratives rather than appropriation ones? Is it past time we put this appropriation conversation to bed? Or must we engage in dissecting the deeper issues that the accusations reveal? So let's talk appropriation, culture, trauma, reimagining tradition and generational style inheritance. Nana Ekwa Bruhammond, let me start with you. Your thoughts. I don't think African-Americans wearing African attire is appropriation. As far as I'm concerned, it's appreciation, it's homage, and it is a way for them to connect with their own birthright. I mean, in Ghana alone, you have 3 million Ghanaians who left the country for economic and political reasons between 66 and 2006. They had kids. I'm one of them. So, you know, the fact that I'm not necessarily directly in the culture and my children may not be and their children may not be, but we're still Ghanaian. And as far as I'm concerned, African-Americans are just sort of, you know, a little bit more distantly related, but they're still related. So I don't think that it's fair to say to them that they're not allowed to wear African culture or African clothing. And similarly, I think to sort of broaden it out, Fashion by nature is inspired by so many influences. I mean, for example, you have Ghanaians wear smocks, but so do people in Mexico. So do do people in Jordan. Did somebody come from Jordan or Mexico to Ghana and see that style and appropriate it? Or was it a vice versa thing? I mean, there's so much sort of cultural exchange in the garments that we wear that I think it's just unfair to especially single out African-Americans and say it in that way, especially considering that the writer who wrote that piece, I believe she's half Nigerian and half British, and I'm sure she gets called out on her sort of authenticity all the time. So for her to kind of be making that statement against African-Americans seems really rich and just not helpful. Dr. Tanisha Ford, your thoughts? No, no, I think you make a great point about this cultural exchange that is happening on both sides of the coin. I think another thing that we have to consider is this language of power, that power is at the core of all the conversations we're having around appropriation. And I think if we consider that, then the short answer for me is no, I don't think African-Americans are appropriating African culture when they wear African and African-inspired attire, in part because I think it requires one to have the power to create a new narrative around the garment. So I don't think when African-Americans are wearing particular prints that they're trying to create a whole new narrative around it. So if we think about someone like Kim Kardashian and the whole boxer braids, right, the fashion industry is creating a whole new narrative around cornrows. They're giving it a new name. They're giving it a new origin story. African-Americans are typically trying to do the reverse. We're trying to connect with roots. We're trying to connect with an origin story that is rooted in the African continent. I think another piece of this power dynamic is that one has to have the power to make money, big money, given the size or in relationship to the size of the market on that good. So when a lot of the people we're upset with their acts of appropriation, there's usually money involved. It usually involves them selling back a culture to the very people who created it, but with this new narrative attached to it. And again, that's a dynamic I typically don't see between the African-American and the continental African exchange. So I think that if we move this into a broader scope, that is not just about, oh, you wore a garment that I think has roots in my culture. It's about this power question. The tension, I think, that the writer Zipporah Jean touched upon in her statement is that there is a sort of power differential between African-Americans and Africans on the continent on some level because African-Americans are 
American as well, they have a certain sort of access to a global market that Africans on the continent don't necessarily have. And I think that that tension sort of spills out between Africans in the diaspora as well as African-Americans. So there is a power differential and there is money attached to that on some level because when you see a festival like Afropunk showcasing the designs in a certain way, I don't know that it's deliberately creating a new narrative. That's not the intent of the people, but it does shape the way people view African culture if they're not connected to it and fully understand, you know, what it, where it comes from. But all that said, I think that what your point about creating a narrative in terms of not crediting the source is real, because I think that that's the issue. For me, anyway, that's the issue. I don't mind if H&M or ASOS creates a line that is inspired by some, you know, batik textile or some sort of fabric that is from the African continent. But what I do mind is I don't want them, I I mind them calling it tribal and just sort of leaving that sort of amorphous term out there that is meaningless and strips away. Like, okay, tell me then which people did it come from? Who made it? One of the terms that really annoys me is boho because it does the same thing. It alludes to an ethnicity and kind of others, anyone who isn't European or American and others them and says, you know, your clothing or your textiles are quote-unquote vacation prints or boho because that is what, you know, an American or European wears or would encounter when they're on vacation in another culture. So to me, it's about unpacking sort of the perspective and saying that, listen, guys, our clothes are dope. <laughs> and of course you like them because they're dope, but give credit where credit is due. I definitely hear you on the point that even within diasporic communities, there seems to be a hierarchy or ranking where oftentimes African-Americans are seen as occupying a better position in that ranking. But when we think about the oppression that blackness, no matter where you are in the world, that the way black people are oppressed, then I think that power, I mean, is it really power? Is it little p power? as opposed to the multi-billion dollar fashion industry and the space that anybody black occupies in that that power structure or that larger structure. I think when we consider that point that all of us are being exploited and oppressed in certain ways, which is why we all are looking to borrow in exchange from one another's cultures, right? That we're, we're, we're seeking a place of home. We're seeking a place of, of likeness, a place of similarity, someone who understands my struggle. I think that's the appeal of the fashion, of the music on the continent, in the United States, in the Caribbean. Like we're all looking to claim something that feels familiar, that feels familial because of the ways that we're all marginalized and exploited. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. I, I was just trying to raise the point that because of the sort of the craziness of colonialism and the history right. of, of slavery and all of that means, the, the irony is that when a festival like Afropunk comes out and it presents African fashion to the world, I don't know that it's leveraging, and I, I don't want to use that because that's a word that implies deliberateness, but it is something that is going to get more eyeballs, or I shouldn't even say more eyeballs because there's so many more people on the African continent, but it's going to get more consumer eyeballs, if you will, which all goes towards that power differential. But again, I, don't, I think that one of the issues and one of the tensions is that there is this sort of fighting for the scrap amongst Black people that we're all sort of dealing with, you know, and I, and I, it's, 
for me, that's why I go back to, I don't think it's appropriation if an African-American wears their clothes. And I don't think it's appropriation necessarily when, you know, a person of, of other descent wears an African-made or African-inspired garment. For me, it's just about sort of giving credit where credit is due and not stripping away, as you said, the narrative that is attached to it and using it, those textiles or those styles as a bridge to learning more because we all are learning. I mean, there, there are pieces that, you know, I wear that I may not be aware of are inspired by, you know, Aztec culture, Incan culture, et cetera. But again, it's sort of that openness to learning about it and not, you know, accepting this kind of catch-all tribal or this catch-all boho, and really sort of investigating where does this come from. So what's interesting for me is, I think about in terms of expansion of narrative, definitely in terms of style and culture, I do think it's also about belonging and the commercialization of culture and who is within attacking point that will pay attention to the attack. And what do I mean by that? I mean that... In so many ways when it comes to the continent of Africa, probably less so in these contemporary moments, but certainly in, in our most recent history, which can literally be you know, last week, last year, the voice of Africans in terms of the expression of their culture and style is rewritten and repackaged by someone else saying exactly what Africans are, are saying themselves. And I think that when some Africans on the continent see the expression of African culture wrapped around the bodies of African-Americans. I actually think it's triggering. I think some of it is like expressions of untreated trauma. It is a manifestation of that trauma through a style conversation. Because the reality is it is actually not possible to appropriate something to which you are actively connected. But all culture evolves and moves and changes in very particular ways. And so I actually think this appropriation conversation specifically among black people, is really a deeper conversation about the unspoken, untreated traumas that exists as a result of our shared history around brutality and injustice and looking for ways to seek expression that too often are not there. They're not formed in the strongest ways, and so we look for them in other spaces. Now, that said, I fully understand the idea about what tradition means to specific tribes and why the expression of a tradition that belongs to a particular tribe remixed for a group of black people of the diaspora creates a particular reaction for that particular tribe. What I do think is it's the expression of that discomfort that is problematic because I think that the adoption of this very accusational tone towards African-Americans by some Africans on the continent, the fact that it is accusatory, that it, it implies that a theft has occurred or something has been stolen. All of that is the language of colonialism, of enslavement, of apartheid, which really is actually about geographical theft, the theft of bodies, stolen land. All of those things are real. Those still untreated wounds, I think, manifest in this place of culture and style. And there's something about the physicality of a, of a body in print that can be triggering in ways that I think we haven't always explored. So certainly for me, I think for me, the call is to have 
the deeper conversation about what that style triggers, as opposed to stay on this surface finger-pointing level where we have some African-Americans pointing fingers at Africans and vice versa. Who in the end does it serve? I think whenever you bring in colonialism or enslavement or apartheid, you're talking about what I call grand stylistic larceny. It is straight theft. That is straight theft. I think when you're talking about African-Americans, you have a generational, cultural, and style inheritance. So you cannot appropriate that to which you are connected. But it would be strange if the expression of your relationship with that style was exactly the same as it was 500 years earlier because of the passage of time and what that time has done to you and for you. How, though, do we move into the broader conversation? How do we shift? Because it comes up again and again and again. I think about the Black Portraitures conferences and the concerns with the narrative about who's Blackness, as if Blackness in and of itself is a conversation about belonging. And I think, again, that this speaks to deeper wounds that require some kind of excavation and more conversation. And I wonder for you both, what would you like for that conversation to be? Starting with you, Nana. You're so right on so many levels about the deep trauma that we're all sort of seeking to or grasping at in certain ways. Because the irony for me is that, like, being the daughter of Ghanaians who were born on the continent, just that once removed connection has Ghanaians constantly calling my authenticity into question. And when I wear African fashion in a certain way, you know, I'm often told that's not the way we do things here. That's not how it should be done. That's not how it should be worn. So I'm particularly sensitive to this because I don't think that it makes sense, especially considering that Africans have been through forced migration and through voluntary migration are all over the world. And just as you said, as culture moves over time, when it physically moves to another location, that culture is going to be remixed by nature. It's going to be remixed. So I look at myself, for example, my sister, my mother, and I, we started a coat line, and it's made of Batakari fabric, which is indigenous to the northernmost regions of Ghana. So we're not from the north, but here we are. We love this fabric. It is native to Ghana. And because I live in a climate where there's fall and winter. I want to wear this fabric not only in the summertime, but I want to wear it in the winter, hence making a coat line. Is that appropriation of this? I don't think so. I think it's a way for me to appreciate and carry home with me no matter what time of year it is. But I think that where I would like to see the conversation go, I would like to have us all just kind of recognize that one, we're all one. We're part of each other. And it's just like children, sort of, when children kind of leave the nest, they're going to do different things with, you know, what their parents have taught them or what their parents have given them. But we're still the same family. And I think that we do need to have deeper discussions about sort of the suspicion that native-born Africans have about people in the diaspora coming in to sort of use their access to maybe global facilities or global funding to take advantage in a way that maybe triggers colonial wounds. At the same time, I think that diasporans have to be careful not to sort of go in and run ramshod and say, like, I know what's best for you. I'm seeing it from the outside and I know what can be done because I think that that's something that we can do as well in the diaspora going in to judge and feel like we can fix all. So I think there just needs to be kind of a, a mutual respect for one another and ways that we can come together because, as you said, the division doesn't serve us. It serves other people. Unity is what's going to serve us. 
Dr. Tanisha Ford? I think that we all on the power scale are so low that to me the appropriation conversation is counterproductive. It's us, you know, battling with one another over being on the margins, right? For a space, a closer space in on the margins, you know? And so I think that when I look back at the 1960s and 1970s, there's similar conversations taking place then about appropriation and what this looks like and authenticity and legitimacy and who has the right to make certain claims, who has the right to, to be in certain spaces. And so I think that these conversations in that regard are nothing new. And so I am excited about the possibility of, of the conversation moving forward. And so for all of the things that a space like Afropunk produces or a space like Black Portraitures, which isn't as heavily mediated corporately as an Afropunk space is, what they do, what those spaces do is it brings us in together into a space. And I think that that's where change can happen. Because I know when I, I originally read that piece about Afropunk, I was bothered by it like a lot of people were. I mean, it was a hot button issue. It was a hot topic. But had it not been for a space that created the contact, maybe we wouldn't be moving into deeper conversations about what's at the heart of this, like what's at stake, why do we even care. So I'm grateful for spaces that force us to have the difficult conversations. And so I think for me, one of the things is having contact which can be difficult in the age of social media where we think just because we have connections via Twitter or, or Facebook or Instagram that somehow that's a real connection. It's not. It's a, a version of a connection, but it's not the same as being in space with one another. But how do, how do we do that? You know, we're oftentimes separated by oceans and seas. Like, how do we get into one space to talk through some of the trauma, like what this means, you know, like for me, my family comes from the U.S. South, Alabama and Mississippi to be exact. And just thinking about everything that my family went through just to be able to move to Indiana where they resettled for jobs, just to have, you know, be able to put food on my family's table for the, the ways that my grandparents died for me to be able to go to college one day, right? There's a lot of generational trauma there alone. That's even post-slavery. So I understand why African Americans have a desire to connect with something, right? With a sense of a home that, that, isn't attached to the same kind of trauma that is attached to this soil, you know, like the, the blood that was literally shed on this land because of white greed. So it, it's a real thing, you know, that trauma runs deep. It is painful. And I think oftentimes if we put on the clothes as a way to cover the wounds, as a way to create a new skin that isn't scarred, in the same way that our own flesh is. But then that second skin becomes a battleground. You know, it's, it becomes a, a ground upon which we have all these conversations about appropriation and theft among black people, which, as you said, I think doesn't really get at the root. So more conversations like this and, when possible, more face-to-face -face conversations where we really pull back the layers or the skin, if you will, and have these deep conversations about what's really at the heart. Like, help me understand how colonialism impacted people on the continent. And, you know, 
perhaps I could help make other people understand the trauma of U.S. slavery and what that has meant for people who are, again, searching for a home. We're like spiritual nomads, you know, looking for a connection. It always becomes dangerous when we do the hierarchy of oppressions because we know in contemporary moments that that really does serve Western commerce and it never does anything substantive or helpful for black people anywhere in the world. So I think for me, there are, there are some specific things. I think this idea of how do you get into mutual space in order to create the kind of connection that can trigger a different kind of conversation, I think that's a really important way to think about how you expand beyond finger pointing based on a moment's observation. Because I think that when it comes to enslavement and colonialism, I would say there are two wounds with enslavement. There is the stayed and the stolen. So if we consider ourselves a global black family, the stolen was a trauma and is a trauma. And the stayed was a trauma and is a trauma. And neither of those are healed through the methods we're adopting right now. And what we are actually doing is interrupting our connection with narratives that belong to those who did the stealing. So it doesn't serve us. I think the idea of understanding, I think for some Africans on the continent, there is the resentment that they think some African-Americans think understanding is a one-way street. So it always becomes, you don't understand enslavement. And then Africans are saying, well, you don't understand colonialism. And the historical reality is each of those oppressions were brutal, terrifying, generational, and live with manifestations to this very day. But for me, what I think is the beauty about style is I actually think what style is, is it's the place where the wounds can be healed if we take a different approach. Like the opportunity to have a conversation, for example, about Batakari and that Batakari, which is this extraordinary fabric from the, the North. And I think about a Ghanaian American woman like Madonna Kendona who is Ghanaian-American and who has a, a, um, a fashion line called Raffia GH, named by Teen Vogue as one of 13 Ghanaians to watch, who kind of marries the tradition and the history of the north of Ghana, where her family is from, with the economics of gender. Because historically, Batakari was a material worn by just men in this very kind of smock style. And what she wanted to do was marry women's economic empowerment with a fabric that belonged to her history, one from a very contemporary moment, one from a deep historical moment, and put the two things together. She also wanted, as a woman who worked within corporate America, to be able to wear batakari when she walked into the boardroom and still walk within what is kind of loosely defined as a, as a corporate dress, something that is more formal and more classic and maybe less vibrant. And so for her, the expression of those multiple cultures manifest through fashion. And so for me, if we, if we recognize that we are bound, Africans on the continent, African-Americans, we are a bound people, but bound together by blood and bone and trauma, 
need not be the only kind of binding we feel. I think the idea for me of looking at something like Afropunk and having this massive celebration of, wow, look how we survived. Look how we faced and dealt with these elements of trauma but found ways to protect our tradition and our history and then stitched it literally into the fabric of today. So for me, I'm like, this part of the challenge we have is to first of all, name that it is an expression of a deeper trauma, name that it is something that is problematic. I think it's also about owning that I think there are different types of margins. You know, the reality of blackness is that in an, an American context, it is a particular thing. And in an African context, it is something else. That doesn't mean that we're not connected. But I think in the same way in someone like Ghana, if you are Ashanti, it matters. If you're Ewe, it matters. If you're Ga, it matters. If you're Fanti, it matters. If you're Akaima, you will identify yourself by tribe. And then within those tribes, there are margins within margins. In the United States, in North America, that one drop rule creates a very specific contextualized blackness. And I definitely know living in, in, in Ghana these past two and a half, three years, that each of us actually is reaching to the other, seeking understanding. And what I want to say to all of us is that I don't know that anybody has felt better understood when the launch point is accusation of theft. Like as a, <laughs> as a, as a mediational kind of approach, it just doesn't work. So then as we kind of bring this to a close, I wonder for you in moving it to a place where we can think about healing within a style space, healing within a space that is about fashion, what might that look like for you both? Starting with you, Tanisha. Well, first of all, I would love to sit front row at one of these African fashion weeks that are popping up around the world. <laughs> you know? Right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it's part of style, right? So we're talking about style, the personal way that we put together garments to reflect something about who we are, where we're from, where we're at, where we're trying to be going, what we aspire to, then that means there has to be a piece of joy to this, you know? <laughs> and what yes. more joy yes. can we find in a space where we see black bodies moving, moving in a way that, that is a reflection of a sense of self-possession, you know, of self-confidence, of self-worth. And using that kind of movement around clothing to create a feeling that, like you said, Esther, isn't just about the shared trauma, right? It's about a collective vision for where we want to go, you know? So I think that spaces where we can lead with black creativity are spaces that are boundless in terms of the possibilities of what we can imagine that we don't even know right now is possible. And I say that in part as someone who has studied various designers across the continent in the 1950s and 60s and seeing how 
people didn't even know those names outside of perhaps the country or maybe perhaps the region. These were names that their influence and their creativity was usurped by people like Yves Saint Laurent, for example, right, who becomes the face of African fashion in the late 1960s. But there's so much creativity that's, of course, permeating on the continent and the Caribbean and the United States with various African-American designers and other people from different parts of the diaspora who are now converging in the United States. But those were names that we didn't know. But right now, what we're seeing happen with African Fashion Weeks popping up with designers whose names we know, whose names we can call, we can see a Michelle Obama wearing Maki O, those were things that people in the generations before us may have dreamed and wanted to see possible, but perhaps didn't see in their day, but that we're seeing. So what happens when we come together in a creative space and start to map out a vision for our collective future. So for me, that's why that, that, that runway space becomes exciting. You know, a black-centered runway space becomes exciting for me because it's like, okay, when our creative minds are at work, when we have the space and the resources to dream, to innovate, that's when we can reimagine what blackness can look like. And to me, I guess that, that gets at the heart of Afrofuturism from my perspective. Closing words to you, Nana Ekwa Hammond. One of the things that sort of struck me, there's a lot of space where there's sort of silence and there isn't that education there. I think that, you know, having gone to secondary school in Ghana, there was no history class that taught me about slavery. And I think that that does something when people in Ghana don't have that fundamental sort of like education about what happened during slavery and what role people on the continent played in the slave trade and just sort of having that understanding. If you live in Cape Coast in Ghana where the slave castles are, you know, you have that and you have people coming doing pilgrimages from all over the globe. So there is that piece of it, but there isn't the formal education. And when it comes to fashion, I think it's important that we interrogate when an ASOS puts out a line that is quote unquote tribal or when we're wearing quote unquote boho look, we need to ask ourselves, what does that really mean? What tribe did this come from? And demand that our retailers give us that education, that they don't get that pass to just kind of put something out there and not give credit where credit is due. Because again, I think the beauty of fashion is that it travels, it speaks volumes, it has so much history, it has so much context that in some cases we may never know. But I think we need to be aware of that and, and seek out what is the story behind this garment that I'm wearing? What are the practices that sort of inspire this garment? And what is the impact that it's having? Ultimately, breaking the rules but preserving the tradition is a generational style inheritance that reflects the ways black people have traveled historically, geographically, culturally, but still holding on to those style Bibles, making sure they don't forget where they came from, just like Blitz, the ambassador. Corruption, 
Make you sick, make you chop some. It's been a minute since me, that you reason where we laugh some. You the guy that time will be Kirisa now. The chat scale is pillow loads and the pampanas. Watching us suffer dancing, we thought we would never grow up. By the fire side, mama Dokono was so hot, but now it was hotter than Uncle George Lane. Cheche Kule, Cheche Kofisa drove us insane. Charlie, you the Kai Italian, I did in the goal. Rivo Jamila score, dancing with a flag pole. Better get, get, you the Kai Senegal 92. Ghana, then Ivory Coast, this year they keep I used to you. Oh, Charlie, the cell phones from back in the day. When we tell me that I'm once in America, I say, well, some things change and some might not. But when they reminisce over you, my God. Secondary school time, catch no be small. Me, I go more down where you learn to survive. Got in shit though, was the ish that kept us all alive. But where'd you decry the nightclubs for Osu? You shot a fine, fine goal where they bounce you. So you go change your clothes, come back, they let you on just to realize you should have stayed your ass at home. Cause the London boys stay here, the Yankee guys stay there. They like the beast to mingle, and you were all alone, Charlie. These are the days we were fam, never missed us. From Bushke to Woodmine to Super Soul Sister. But I gotta say, looking back in the day, nobody should have cried quite like Acapulco Bay. Cause some things change and some might not But when they reminisce over you, my God Police corruption, still election Brutality, my brother look at option That's why you don't forget where you come from You don't forget where you come from Sometimes as black folk, we treat each other as if we were different. But in truth, aren't we just versions of each other, shaped and shifted by time and history and injustice and environment? But still, they say we're different. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right, I got a real bone. My great-grandma didn't like the fox. Now it's dishy spit, it's nothing boogie Tell me what They say I'm different cause I eat shit lens And I can't help it, I was born and raised on a That's right, every morning after slop the hogs And they be getting off, humping the jolly That was part one of this two-part Fashion Forum Africa special on The Spin you're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women-of-color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Arma. Our contributors this week are Nana Ekwa Brew-Hammond and Dr. Tanisha Ford. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, New York, Georgia, Iowa, and Massachusetts. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and in London on ABN Radio UK. And of course, we're a podcast. So subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. And that's why one mic, one hour, three black women, and we go global. We keep it fly. We honor the smart because smart is sexy and sometimes tradition can be remixed updated reimagined and still honor culture history heritage and our reimagined remixed origins Black Black. 
part two of Fashion from Africa special on The Spin. Africa Fashion Week is now global. A daughter of the diaspora launched her vision of bringing Africa's fashion and style to the catwalks of the cities of London, New York, Washington, D.C., Paris, and Berlin. Her mission? African fashion must be industry for Africans across the diaspora and the continent. That Africa as a continent of 54 nations inspires its creativity and it is also commerce. And those who create it, who inspire it, should benefit from that. So that vision belonged to Nigerian-American Adiat Disu. And Disu combined her passion for fashion and African design with her skills in technology and marketing. Here... She explains why. In 2010, uh, I was at Mercedes-Benz, and when I saw a rise um, come, they had a collective during the Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week, and I saw how big, how beautiful we were, but I said, we are too big, we are too beautiful to just be restricted within that amount of time. So I said, New York needs to get more time with us, more time to explore the beauty that comes from Africa. Mm -hmm. The fact is, at the end of the day, these designers create economic opportunities for people from their country. And I think that's the beauty, the beautiful part of fashion, really, is uh, not being as superficial, just leaving everything to the run runway, the glitz and glamour of things, but more so who it benefits at the end of the day as well. So I believe our fashion platform has definitely touched many lives and different perspectives of, of life. Adiat Disuda, from a Nigerian-American to a Ghanaian Brit, Makiba Boateng. Makiba speaks about the need for Africa to more effectively industrialize fashion in Ghana and across ECOWAS. It was that vision that led her to create the advocacy organization Fashion Forum Africa. The forum brings together fashion stakeholders in Ghana, 
and the ECOWAS region of West Africa to industrialize and transform what she called a fashion business community into a thriving industry. In Ghana, we do not have an industry. What we have is the fashion business community. We have many people who are making money within fashion, textiles, and beauty in in Ghana. We do not have an industry. We are trying to help to structure an industry in terms of fashion form Africa. We're trying to structure an industry by bringing together like-minded people who want to push fashion further within the country, who believe that we can have an industry. So we're talking about all the different types of stakeholders in fashion, not just designers. We're talking to stylists. We're talking to educationalists. We're talking to fabric manufacturers. We're talking to journalists. We're talking to all kinds of producers who are credible, who we can put together to try to grow the business community into industry. This year's Africa Fashion Week London brought reimagined Kente to the catwalk. And designers spoke about how the annual focus and celebration of African fashion has enabled business to grow and brands to build. Here's Ghanaian British stylist, um, Samson Soboye. This year we've got over 50 designers in our selection and we've got like seven different countries represented from all over Africa that are really bringing the colour, the brand of Africa to uh, this year at Freemasons Hall in London's Covent Garden. And take a listen to Nigerian British designer George Adeshegun, whose collection introduced what he called evolutionary primitivism couture. Say what? I know, right? Adeshegun, please explain. My collection is actually evolution primitive primitivism couture, which is um, more or less the aesthetics of African, my aesthetics and my heritage and all that. I'm trying to like bring those elements into within you know, my work that says exactly who I am and all that because I'm British born, but I was brought up in Nigeria. The Evolution Primitivism Collection prints inspiration comes from the Nsibidi African secret text featuring centuries-old symbols. From London to New York, Africa Fashion Week in New York in 2014 worked in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. They had a specific aim. The aim was to engage in the economics of building a thriving fashion industry. Africa Fashion Week founder Adiat Disu explains. Fashion sometimes is overlooked or underrated. So having the UN partnered with us just, I guess, emphasized the importance of such an industry and how we should look at it as an economic driver and perhaps a deliverance from a lot of unemployment that is on the continent. And take a listen to this report on this year's Africa Fashion Week in New York. Colorful couture from the African continent took center stage as African Fashion Week returned to New York, the city of style, for its fifth straight run. All eyes were on fashion-forward designers from Ghana to Morocco, who showcased their latest looks before a global audience, a rare opportunity to give the world a hint of what's to come from a blossoming African industry. I'm going to be able to sell the old idea of Nigerian fashion to a bigger city like New York. So it's big, it's huge, and it's amazing. I'm excited to be here. This is the first year Africa's fashion display has coincided with New York City's Fashion Week. 
Many designers are delighted with the chance to charm the industry's best from the front row, but some say the true potential of Africa's growing industry is best seen back home. One of the things that we ought to strive for is to try to get the big industries or, or the, you know, uh, the retail chains to come in to see some of the quality and see some of the emerging designs that are coming out of Africa. And I'm sure they will be very inspired and very intrigued uh, to touch and feel and, and possibly carry these uh, unique products in their stores. African Fashion Week was established to showcase the vibrant colors of the continent. But this move to the main stage here at New York City Fashion Week also puts designers in the international spotlight, which they say is very good for business. Africa Fashion Week is building bridges, brands and business across the cities of London, New York, Paris, Washington, D.C. So let's talk. Africa Fashion Week goes global. Industry and implications. Dr. Tanisha Ford, your thoughts? For one, I'm excited about the possibilities of Africa Fashion Week and its global reach, in part because in the first segment we were talking about, you know, African Americans and how much we benefit from or profit from our culture. And I think that it's, it's important that we're clear. African American culture is often everywhere, but not because we're the ones who are profiting from that. Um, so to see a fashion week that brings together stakeholders in African fashions and the diversities therein, and knowing that a lot of those stakeholders are Africans and people of African descent, to me, is, is huge. The fact that we're creating not only our own markets, but our own investment groups. We're going to invest in us. So it's, it's again, it's this idea of FUBU, for us, by us. That's the part that really speaks to me. So it's this idea that, yes, we're going to style, and there's, a, there's an emotional part of this, there's a creative part of this, but then there's also a piece that can be lucrative financially and that can set us up for generational wealth. Now, I know that whenever we're dealing with the fashion industry, we're already talking about an elite group of people who can even participate in these conversations. And so I definitely want to be clear that I, I recognize that piece. But the sheer fact that a lot of these organizations like and people like the Adisu who are partnering with organizations that are giving back to communities across the continent, I think that that piece is really important. Like when we have black dollars, how we imagine spending those dollars and recommitting those dollars to our own communities can look vastly different than what the mainstream fashion industry does with money or how it hoards wealth, how it reproduces a capitalist machine. So the idea of us being able to use our own style, our own remixed traditions as a way to empower our own communities, for me, I'm, I'm excited to, to see where this all goes. What excites me about this as well is the fact that it is giving people work. I think back to the Africa Fashion Week. I think back to the shows that Arise magazine used to have and just the African designers that I've seen, you know, showcase their work on the runway. And, and you would inevitably see more African models or more black models working. And we know that that's another issue in the fashion industry where a certain ideal of beauty is pandered as, as the supreme ideal of beauty. And that often shuts out African-American and people of African descent. 
So that excites me most of all that we're, we're seeing that, one, it's not only expanding industry and commerce for, you know, the designers, but it's giving more space to African models and models of African descent. It's giving more space and more and more airtime to the artisans that are crafting this work because when you're taking a design that is inspired by a kente or a batakari, you're speaking to centuries of you know, artisanship and expertise that have been passed down generationally. And so we're, we're, we're getting to understand that luxury is not the sole province of Italy or France, but we're actually creating luxury bespoke garments on the continent as well. And that conversation is being had when we see more African design go global. It's also exciting to see the incredible diversity on the continent within nations, within the cultures, within the nation, and within the diaspora that is sort of coming out of the continent. So for me, I, I just love the fact that it's expanding the narrative on another level. And it's giving people work. I remember being in New York City for the Arise fashion show, which really was the first kind of Africa fashion week in New York. And it was the impetus that prompted Adia Dessou to create Africa fashion week across cities all over the diaspora. And I remember genuinely being absolutely blown away by the power of the panorama of beauty that is blackness. I remember looking around and being like, damn, we are some seriously fine, creative, imaginative people when it comes to all the different ways we walk with our style and the way we do what I call the way we style our inheritance. So I saw Ghanaians who flown in from Ghana. I saw Ghanaians who'd come in from London. There were Africans from all across the United States, primarily from the ECOWAS region, which is West Africa. Then I saw and I met Ethiopians. We think about places like Washington, D.C., where there's a big Ethiopian community who'd come in specifically for this Arise moment because it was the first of its kind. I remember thinking, wow, I don't know... I feel like that the just the people who came and the way they all styled for the gods and the goddesses, they all belonged on the catwalk. It was just such an extraordinary coming together. And what excites me about Africa Fashion Week in all these different cities is the combination of style becoming a commercial generational inheritance that could potentially transform these horrific levels of unemployment that are on the continent. But I also see it as having the really serious power and potential of building bridges for our trauma. Like it is the place, Dr. Tanisha Ford, when you talk about how do we get into space to have these conversations, I think the Africa Fashion Week is a beautiful way to create exactly that. It allows for conversations that explain the origins of all kinds of things. It allows for an engagement that is about an appreciation of beauty and the panorama of something as opposed to the perception that something has been taken or appropriated. And I, I really hate that word when it comes to the way we engage with each other as black folk. But I think that for me is the thing that is particularly powerful and very joy-filled. So we end on a joy-filled note from we kind of watched a whole bunch of videos that showed us Africa Fashion Week in London, Africa Fashion Week in New York. And I wondered from what you saw, ladies, whether there was a particular style or something that you saw that was inspirational that you wanted to rock. So I'd like to end on a, on a joy-filled note, starting with you, Dr. Tanisha Ford. 
I love to see pieces come down the runway that mix prints, bright colors, vibrant colors. I'm writing a chapter right now that talks about appropriation, but what I'm mostly talking about is how black people create colors of liberation for ourselves, right? Like, what is what is liberation's color palette? And I feel like for us as African and African-descended people is it's bright, it's vibrant, it's all the colors. No color is off-limit and no color clashes with another. Closing word to you, Nana Ekua Bruhammond. I'm really drawing inspiration from the sort of artisanship, craftsmanship, and the stories behind the textiles that African design artisans are making. I'm in love with, there's a designer called Loza Malayombo. She's from Cote d'Ivoire, and she just makes these beautiful contemporary designs out of fabrics inspired by traditional practices. There's Mimi Plange from Ghana, who had a line of clothing. The textiles were inspired by the tattoo and scarification practices on the continent. I also love beautiful prints. I really loved what Zuli Bet, the Malian designer based in France. For spring 2017, he showed a beautiful, just sort of casual Ankara sportswear line. I love Studio 189, a collaboration by the Ghanaian Abrima Aria and the actress Rosario Dawson. I think their work in terms of the textiles that they're creating and using is just beautiful. And of course, there's Duro Oluo, so many, but I'm just inspired by the craftsmanship and the stories that those sort of inevitably are attached to and and the conversation that sort of they spark. Africa Fashion Week, so much more than a week. It is a world, uncontained, global, local, creativity, culture, commerce. Cities in a continent. Name them Blitz. Go ahead, do just that. your hour. Thank you to Nana Ekwa Bruhammond and Dr. Tanisha Ford. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. I want to hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, a.k.a. McKeever Magic, and distributor Loretta Rucker and the AAPRC. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. The Spin. It's your hour of global talk, where smart is sexy. I'm your host, 
Esther Armour. Nope. Everybody said policy, no universal way. equality, no responsibility, policy no. to survive economically. Oh. Some people do it comically, future yeah. freedom, equality. Me. Invest your money properly, people owe me your policy. Ah. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen, commodity, souls controlling, robbery, soul, lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me, mine on black, that's following me. Honesty, 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 all these jokers, economy, puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's spooky society. See you looking, but you better take, take it, it easy. easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy. Take it easy, take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.